This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 48. Curious Specimens of Art and Architecture. Public Reception of the Pilgrims. Mary Magdalene's House. Tiberius and its Queer Inhabitants. The Sacred Sea of Galilee. Galilee by Night. Magdala is not a beautiful place. It is thoroughly Syrian, and that is to say that it is thoroughly ugly, and cramped, squalid, uncomfortable, and filthy. Just the style of cities that have adorned the country since Adam's time, as all writers have labored hard to prove, and have succeeded. The streets of Magdala are anywhere from three to six feet wide, and reeking with uncleanliness. The houses are from five to seven feet high, and all built upon one arbitrary plan, the ungraceful form of a dry-goods box. The sides are daubed with a smooth white plaster, and tastefully frescoed aloft, and below with discs of camel-dung placed there to dry. This gives the edifice the romantic appearance of having been riddled with cannon-balls, and imparts to it a very warlike aspect. When the artist has arranged his materials with an eye to just proportion, the small and the large flakes in alternate rows, and separated by carefully considered intervals, I know of nothing more cheerful to look upon than a spirited Syrian fresco. The flat, plastered roof is garnished by picturesque stacks of fresco materials, which, having become thoroughly dried and cured, are placed there where it will be convenient. It is used for fuel. There is no timber of any consequence in Palestine none at all to waste upon fires, and neither are there any mines of coal. If my description has been intelligible, you will perceive now that a square, flat-roofed hovel, neatly frescoed, with its wall-tops gallantly bastioned and turreted with dried camel-refuse, gives to a landscape a feature that is exceedingly festive and picturesque, especially if one is careful to remember to stick in a cat wherever about the premises there is room for a cat to sit. There are no windows to a Syrian hut, and no chimneys. When I used to read that they led a bedridden man down through the roof of a house in Capernaum to get him into the presence of the Saviour, I generally had a three-story brick in my mind, and marveled that they did not break his neck with a strange experiment. I perceive now, however, that they might have taken him by the heels and thrown him clear over the house without discommoding him very much. Palestine has not changed any since those days, in manners, customs, architecture, or people. As we rode into Magdala, not a soul was visible. But the ring of the horses' hoofs roused the stupid population, and they all came trotting out, old men and old women, boys and girls, the blind, the crazy, and the crippled, all in ragged, soiled, and scanty raiment, and all abject beggars by nature, instinct, and education. How the vermin-tortured vagabonds did swarm! How they showed their scars and sores, and piteously pointed to their maimed and crooked limbs, and begged with their pleading eyes for charity! We had invoked a spirit we could not lay. They hung to the horses' tails, clung to their manes and the stirrups, closed in on every side in scorn of dangerous hoofs, and of their infidel throats, with one accord, burst an agonizing and most infernal chorus. Hawaji bookshish, Hawaji bookshish, Hawaji bookshish, 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 
I never was in a storm like that before. As we paid the bookshish out to the sore-eyed children and brown buxom girls with repulsively tattooed lips and chins, we filed through the town and by many an exquisite fresco till we came to a bramble-infested enclosure and a Roman-looking ruin which had been the veritable dwelling of St. Mary Magdalene, the friend and follower of Jesus. The guide believed it, and so did I. I could not well do otherwise, with the house right there before my eyes as plain as day. The pilgrims took down portions of the front wall for specimens, as is their honored custom, and then we departed. We are camped in this place now, just within the city walls of Tiberius. We went into the town before nightfall, and looked at its people. We cared nothing about its houses. Its people are best examined at a distance. They are particularly uncomely Jews, Arabs, and Negroes. Squalor and poverty are the pride of Tiberius. The young women wear their dower strung upon a strong wire that curves downward from the top of the head to the jaw. Turkish silver coins which they have raked together or inherited. Most of these maidens were not wealthy, but some few had been very kindly dealt with by fortune. I saw heiresses there, worth, in their own right, worth, well, I suppose I might venture to say, as much as nine dollars and a half. But such cases are rare. When you come across one of these, she naturally puts on airs. She will not ask for bucksheesh. She will not even permit of undue familiarity. She assumes a crushing dignity, and goes on serenely practicing with her fine-tooth comb, and quoting poetry just the same as if you were not present at all. Some people cannot stand prosperity. They say that the long-nosed, lanky, dyspeptic-looking body-snatchers, with the indescribable hats on, and a long curl dangling down in front of each ear, are the old, familiar, self-righteous Pharisees we read of in the Scriptures. Verily, they look it. Judging merely by their general style, and without other evidence, one might easily suspect that self-righteousness was their specialty. From various authorities I have culled information concerning Tiberius. It was built by Herod Antipas, the murderer of John the Baptist, and named after the Emperor Tiberius. It is believed that it stands upon the site of what must have been, ages ago, a city of considerable architectural pretensions, judging by the fine porphyry pillars that are scattered through Tiberius, and down the lake shore southward. These were fluted once, and yet, although the stone is about as hard as iron, the flutings are almost worn away. These pillars are small, and doubtless the edifices they adorned were distinguished more for elegance than grandeur. This modern town, Tiberius, is only mentioned in the New Testament, never in the Old. The Sanhedrim met here last, and for three hundred years Tiberius was the metropolis of the Jews in Palestine. It is one of the four holy cities of the Israelites, and is to them what Mecca is to the Mohammedan, and Jerusalem to the Christian. It has been the abiding place of many learned and famous Jewish rabbins. They lie buried here, and near them lie also twenty-five thousand of their faith, who travelled far to be near them, while they lived, and lie with them when they die. The great rabbi Ben Israel spent three years here in the early part of the third century. He is dead now. The celebrated Sea of Galilee is not so large a sea as Lake Tahoe. I measure all lakes by Tahoe, partly because I am far more familiar with it than with any other, and partly because I have such a high admiration for it, and such a world of pleasant recollections of it, that it is very nearly impossible for me to speak of lakes and not mention it.
By a good deal. It is just about two-thirds as large. And when we come to speak of beauty, this sea is no more to be compared to Tahoe than a meridian of longitude is to a rainbow. The dim waters of this pool cannot suggest the limpid brilliancy of Tahoe, these low, shaven, yellow hillocks of rocks and sand, so devoid of perspective, cannot suggest the grand peaks that compass Tahoe like a wall, and whose ribbed and chasmed fronts are clad with stately pines that seem to grow small and smaller as they climb, till one might fancy them reduced to weeds and shrubs far upward, where they join the everlasting snows. Silence and solitude brood over Tahoe and silence and solitude brood also over this lake of Genesaret. But the solitude of the one is as cheerful and fascinating as the solitude of the other is dismal and repellent. In the early morning one watches the silent battle of dawn and darkness upon the waters of Tahoe with a placid interest. But when the shadows sulk away and one by one the hidden beauties of the shore unfold themselves in the full splendor of noon, when the still surface is belted like a rainbow with broad bars of blue and green and white half the distance from circumference to center, when in the lazy summer afternoon he lies in a boat far out to where the dead blue of the deep water begins, and smokes the pipe of peace, and idly winks at the distant crags and patches of snow from under his cap-brim, when the boat drifts shoreward to the white water, and he lolls over the gunwale, and gazes by the hour down through the crystal depths, and notes the colors of the pebbles, and reviews the finny armies gliding in procession a hundred feet below, when at night he sees moon and stars, mountain ridges feathered with pines, jutting white capes, bold promontories, grand sweeps of rugged scenery topped with bald glimmering peaks, all magnificently pictured in the polished mirror of the lake in richest, softest detail, the tranquil interest that was born with the morning deepens and deepens, by sure degrees, till it culminates at last in resistless fascination. It is solitude, for birds and squirrels on the shore and fishes in the water are all the creatures that are near to make it otherwise, but it is not the sort of solitude to make one dreary. Come to Galilee for that! If these unpeopled deserts, these rusty mounds of barrenness, that never, never, never do shake the glare from their harsh outlines, and fade and faint into vague perspective, that melancholy ruin of Capernaum, this stupid village of Tiberias, slumbering under its six funereal plumes of palms, yonder desolate declivity where the swine of the miracle ran down into the sea, and doubtless thought it was better to swallow a devil or two and get drowned into the bargain than have to live longer in such a place, this cloudless, blistering sky, this solemn, sailless, tintless lake, reposing within its brim of yellow hills and low, steep banks, and looking just as expressionless and unpoetical, when we leave its sublime history out of the question, as any metropolitan reservoir in Christendom, if these things are not food for rock me to sleep, mother, none exist, I think. But I should not offer the evidence for the prosecution and leave the defense unheard. William C. Grimes deposes as follows. We had taken ship to go over to the other side. The sea was not more than six miles wide. Of the beauty of the scene, however, I cannot say enough. 
nor can I imagine where those travellers carry their eyes who have described the scenery of the lake as tame or uninteresting. The first great characteristic of it is the deep basin in which it lies. This is from three to four hundred feet deep on all sides except at the lower end, and the sharp slope of the banks, which are all of the richest green, is broken and diversified by the wadis and water-courses which work their way down through the sides of the basin, forming dark chasms or light sunny valleys. Near Tiberias these banks are rocky, and ancient sepulchres open in them, with their doors toward the water. They selected grand spots, as did the Egyptians of old, for burial-places, as if they designed that when the voice of God should reach the sleepers, they should walk forth and open their eyes on scenes of glorious beauty. On the east the wild and desolate mountains contrast finely with the deep blue lake, and toward the north sublime and majestic Hermon looks down on the sea, lifting his white crown to heaven with the pride of a hill that has seen the departing footsteps of a hundred generations. On the north-east shore of the sea was a single tree, and this is the only tree of any size visible from the water of the lake, except a few lonely palms in the city of Tiberias and by its solitary position attracts more attention than would a forest. The whole appearance of the scene is precisely what we would expect and desire the scenery of Genesaret to be. Grand beauty, but quite calm. The very mountains are calm. It is an ingeniously written description, and well calculated to deceive. But if the paint and the ribbons and the flowers be stripped from it, a skeleton will be found beneath. So stripped, there remains a lake six miles wide and neutral in color, with steep green banks, unrelieved by shrubbery, at one end bare, unsightly rocks, with almost invisible holes in them of no consequence to the picture. Eastward, wild and desolate mountains, low, desolate hills, he should have said. In the north, a mountain called Hermon, with snow on it, peculiarity of the picture, calmness its prominent features, one tree. No ingenuity could make such a picture beautiful to one's actual vision. I claim the right to correct misstatements, and have so corrected the color of the water in the above recapitulation. The waters of Genesaret are of an exceedingly mild blue, even from a high elevation and a distance of five miles. Close at hand the witness was sailing on the lake. It is hardly proper to call them blue at all, much less deep blue. I wish to state also, not as a correction, but as a matter of opinion, that Mount Hermon is not a striking or picturesque mountain by any means, being too near the height of its immediate neighbors to be so. That is all. I do not object to the witness dragging a mountain forty-five miles to help the scenery under consideration, because it is entirely proper to do it, and besides, the picture needs it. C. W. E. of Life in the Holy Land deposes as follows. A beautiful sea lies unbosomed among the Galilean hills, in the midst of that land once possessed by Zebulon and Naphtali, Asher and Dan. The azure of the sky penetrates the depths of the lake, and the waters are sweet and cool. On the west stretch broad fertile plains. On the north the rocky shores rise step by step, until in the far distance tower the snowy heights of Hermon. On the east, through a misty veil, are seen the high plains of Peria, which stretch away in rugged mountains, leading the mind by varied paths toward Jerusalem the Holy. Flowers bloom in this terrestrial paradise, 
once beautiful and verdant with waving trees. Singing birds enchant the ear. The turtle-dove soothes with its soft note. The crested lark sends up its song toward heaven, and the grave and stately stork inspires the mind with thought, and leads it on to meditation and repose. Life here was once idyllic, charming. Here were once no rich, no poor, no high, no low. It was a world of ease, simplicity, and beauty. Now it is a scene of desolation and misery. This is not an ingenious picture. It is the worst I ever saw. It describes in elaborate detail what it terms a terrestrial paradise, and closes with the startling information that this paradise is a scene of desolation and misery. I have given two fair, average specimens of the character of the testimony offered by the majority of the writers who visit this region. One says, Of the beauty of the piece I cannot say enough, and then proceeds to cover up with a woof of glittering sentences, a thing which, when stripped for inspection, proves to be only an unobtrusive basin of water, some mountainous desolation, and one tree. The other, after a conscientious effort to build a terrestrial paradise out of the same materials, with the addition of a grave and stately stork, spoils it all by blundering upon the ghastly truth at the last. Nearly every book concerning Galilee and its lake describes the scenery as beautiful. No, not always so straightforward as that. Sometimes the impression intentionally conveyed is that it is beautiful, at the same time that the author is careful not to say that it is in plain Saxon. But a careful analysis of these descriptions will show that the materials of which they are formed are not individually beautiful, and cannot be wrought into combinations that are beautiful. The veneration and the affection which some of these men felt for the scenes they were speaking of heated their fancies and biased their judgment. But the pleasant falsities they wrote were full of honest sincerity, at any rate. Others wrote as they did, because they feared it would be unpopular to write otherwise. Others were hypocrites, and deliberately meant to deceive. Any of them would say in a moment, if asked, that it was always right and always best to tell the truth. They would say that, at any rate if they did not perceive the drift of the question. But why should not the truth be spoken of this region? Is the truth harmful? Has it ever needed to hide its face? God made the Sea of Galilee, and its surroundings as they are. Is it the province of Mr. Grimes to improve upon the work? I am sure, from the tenor of books I have read, that many who have visited this land in years gone by were Presbyterians, and came seeking evidences in support of their particular creed. They found a Presbyterian Palestine, and they had already made up their minds to find no other, though possibly they did not know it, being blinded by their zeal. Others were Baptists, seeking Baptist evidences and a Baptist Palestine. Others were Catholics, Methodists, Episcopalians, seeking evidences endorsing their several creeds, and a Catholic, a Methodist, an Episcopalian Palestine. Honest as these men's intentions may have been, they were full of partialities and prejudices. They entered the country with their verdicts already prepared, and they could no more write dispassionately and impartially about it than they could about their own wives and children. Our pilgrims have brought their verdicts with them. They have shown it in their conversation ever since we left Beirut. I can almost tell, in set phrase, what they will say when they see Tabor, Nazareth, Jericho, and Jerusalem because I have the books they will smooch their ideas from. 
these authors write pictures and frame rhapsodies, and lesser men follow and see with the author's eyes instead of their own, and speak with his tongue. What the pilgrims said at Caesarea Philippi surprised me with its wisdom. I found it afterwards in Robinson. What they said when Genesaret burst upon their vision charmed me with its grace. I find it in Mr. Thompson's Land and the Book. They have spoken often in happily worded language which never varied, of how they mean to lay their weary heads upon a stone at Bethel, as Jacob did, and close their dim eyes, and dream, perchance, of angels descending out of heaven on a ladder. It was very pretty, but I have recognized the weary head, and the dim eyes, finally. They borrowed the idea, and the words, and the construction, and the punctuation, from Grimes. The pilgrims will tell of Palestine when they get home, not as it appeared to them, but as it appeared to Thompson, and Robinson, and Grimes, with the tints varied to suit each pilgrim's creed. Pilgrims, sinners, and Arabs are all abed now, and the camp is still. Labor in loneliness is irksome. Since I made my last few notes, I have been sitting outside the tent for half an hour. Night is the time to see Galilee. Genesaret, under these lustrous stars, has nothing repulsive about it. Genesaret, with the glittering reflections of the constellations flecking its surface, almost makes me regret that I ever saw the rude glare of the day upon it. Its history and its associations are its chiefest charm in any eyes, and the spells they weave are feeble in the searching light of the sun. Then we scarcely feel the fetters. Our thoughts wander constantly to the practical concerns of life, and refuse to dwell upon things that seem vague and unreal. But when the day is done, even the most unimpressible must yield to the dreamy influences of this tranquil starlight. The old traditions of the place steal upon his memory and haunt his reveries, and then his fancy clothes all sights and sounds with the supernatural. In the lapping of the waves upon the beach he hears the dip of ghostly oars. In the secret noises of the night he hears spirit-voices. In the soft sweep of the breeze the rush of invisible wings. Phantom ships are on the sea, the dead of twenty centuries come forth from the tombs, and in the dirges of the night wind the songs of old forgotten ages find utterance again. In the starlight Galilee has no boundaries but the broad compass of the heavens, and is a theatre meet for great events meet for the birth of religion able to save a world, and meet for the stately figure appointed to stand upon its stage and proclaim its high degrees. But in the sunlight one says, Is it for the deeds which were done, and the words which were spoken in this little acre of rocks and sand eighteen centuries gone, that the bells are ringing to-day in the remote islands of the sea and far and wide over continents that clasp the circumference of the huge globe? One can comprehend it only when night has hidden all incongruities, and created a theatre proper for so grand a drama. End of chapter 48